Hey guys, this is a quick reminder that the two best ways you can support the show are by one, leaving a rating and comment on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. This is like foreplay for the algorithm because it revs it up and makes our show appear higher in searches. And number two, you can subscribe to Auxoro Premium at auxoro.supercast.com, where for five bucks a month you get bonus episodes and more exclusive content. Thank you for however you choose to support the show. Welcome back to another episode of The Ox. Dude, this this podcast has been a whirlwind. Podcasting in general has been a whirlwind. It started four years ago, summer of 2018, and I was interviewing a rapper, Mod Sun, backstage, and now 500 plus episodes later... You know, both guest episodes and solo episodes. This has become a huge part of my life. So thank you guys for tuning into this. And speaking of a whirlwind, I have been watching the F1 Drive to Survive series on Netflix. Have you guys seen this series? Have you guys seen guys going 230 miles per hour on straightaways? And then I don't, God knows how fast these guys are going around turns. I am watching from the point of view of some of these drivers in the, in the F1 series. And I'm completely safe. I'm completely safe in the privacy of my own apartment, watching from my couch or what is supposed to be a couch because it's basically just a folded up piece of furniture, like a little portable futon couch because I turn my living room into a workout space. But I'm sitting in the privacy of my apartment with my dilapidated couch and I'm watching these guys go 200 plus down straightaways just fucking and my heart is absolutely pounding like I am in zero danger and I feel like I am in all the danger And it's crazy what these guys go through. And and I know just what I know from watching this this series, this documentary series on on all the F1 teams. They they have Mercedes, they have Ferrari, they have Renault. Um they had I think I believe there's ten different teams with two different drivers on each team. And it's fucking fascinating. Like it is just the amount of concentration and the amount that you have to be in the moment to not only finish one of these races without crashing, but to win one of these races to to qualify for points, the amount of concentration has to be un has to be otherworldly. It has to be godly. I thought I knew what it was like to be in the moment during a podcast, and I'm not saying I'm not in the moment for a podcast. Whether I'm, you know, talking into the mic by myself, I'm with another guest, I I am in the moment. And when I'm not in the moment, I'm trying my absolute best to stay present. But these guys, if you even fucking flinch for 0.02 seconds, that could be the race. And even worse, that could be your health. That could be your life. The amount of like. I was thinking about this when I was making the drive home from Canada with my with my brother this uh, this past weekend. I was staying at a, a river house, lake house, whatever you want to call it. When I uh, I spoke about it a little bit on the last podcast, but I'm driving back from Canada and I'm thinking, all right, when I blink and I'm driving this car 70, 75 down the highway, just that blink, I'm traveling what 20 30 feet at the minimum like whatever distance whatever the amount it takes you to blink driving 70 miles an hour you're traveling a good bit of distance just from blinking on the fucking road let alone turning the radio knob or like switching a song which can be very dangerous and i try my best not to do just that split second driving 75 miles an hour is 
could could possibly you know lead to a car accident or a wreck if if you're if that point zero two seconds of a blink turns into you checking your phone doing whatever if you are driving 230 250 miles an hour down a fucking straightaway and they just blink or they look to the side like they check their rear view mirror and then something happens in front of them they're traveling hundreds of feet in microseconds like it's fucking crazy it's absolutely crazy and something that I didn't realize watching F1, I, I've, I never, I've never watched any sort of racing, uh, you know, ne- never really watched NASCAR. I've been to some tailgates. I, I was down at Richmond uh, back in my days at school. I would go to some tailgates, get fucked up, but I wouldn't go to the actual race. Never got into NASCAR on TV. I cannot wait to go to a Formula One race live. It's absolutely fascinating because you're not just going around in a circle. No shade to those guys and NASCAR. But F1, you're driving through cities. You're driving on roads that people normally walk through or drive through when there's not a Formula One race there. And all these tight turns, these twists, they're going around them like they're driving turns that I would feel unsafe going 40 or 50 miles an hour around in a car, they're going a hundred plus on turns. And then I don't even want to know what the top speed is in a formula one race on a straightaway. Like, and something I didn't realize before watching this series is how many guys don't finish the race, how often people crash and have these fierce crashes when you look at them, you think, oh my God, that guy's dead. The, the life just flew out of that guy's body as he flew into the wall. And then the guy, the guy gets out of the car and th- there actually haven't been that many deaths in Formula One because of how good the, the safety is inside the car and how good the crews are at recovering the driver. But I didn't realize how much how often crashes happen it it, ha- it seems to happen every single race at least in this netflix series and at the start at the start i don't know i i honestly i don't know how you get out of this start of an f1 race you have 20 cars lined up like jigsaw puzzles just down the track they're a few feet apart and they're kind of stacked depending on where you finish where you qualify you start in the front if you qualify First on Saturday and the the race is on Sunday. So if you qualify, you start in the front. And if your time is shitty in qualifying, you start towards the back. But either way, the cars are so close to each other. And you're all starting at the same time. It's not like a staggered thing. You're, you're starting at the light, or the, the green light, or when the light goes off. And you are inches away from each other at the start of the race inches just imagine you're in a a, a, an f1 car and there are 19 other vehicles in your space that are all inches away from each other and all of you all of you that i just bumped my microphone piece that's how that's that's how uh fucking powerful it is imagining this race my foot just flicked towards the gas like i'm pressing a a gas pedal and it's my microphone stand that i almost just smacked myself in the face with but imagine you are an f1 driver 19 other cars around you you all floor the gas at that same moment and you're all traveling alongside each other inches away and you're trying to weave in and out you're trying to get distance covered on the other drivers you're, you're making maneuvers you're thinking about but when you when it first starts it seems like so many of these crashes happen that as a formula one driver i would be thinking okay i'll make up points later in the race right now the start my goal is to not crash and that may be the goal that, that i don't know much about the strategy of f1 i know some basics that the drivers and the team talk about but in terms of getting off the start, even just that seems like would take it seems like that would be take you years to learn how to do. 
just to start, let alone drive the car. And something that uh, something that they talk about in the series that I had no clue about. Again, <laughs> this is just going to be me saying things about the best cars in the world that I have no idea about because this is the first time I'm I'm diving into it. And you're doing it with me, so thank you. Thank you for being here. But I I did not know that you have to actually it's actually the faster you drive the car, the more safe it is, from how I understand it. So a Formula One car is built to create downward force. There's there's a word for it, I forget what it is, but downward drag, downward force. So the faster you drive the car, the more it is pressing against the track. And it can actually be less safe to drive the car more slowly. It, it can actually get dangerous as you drive the car slow because the tires cool off. That creates less friction with the ground and there's also less downward force between the car and the track. So your car becomes less maneuverable and you'll actually see drivers weaving on the course like they're drunk driving an F1 course to get traction on their tires, to heat up their tires, to get some traction back. And there's so much trust that goes on driving this car. There's an insane amount of trust because these drivers have to defy what their brain is telling them. You have to defy the urge to slow down when you come to a turn. You, You have to go completely again. Like imagine you're driving up to a really tight turn, like a, a, a round, you know, 60 degree turn and, and you're coming up to it, that place in the road where you see the arrows and they're telling you to slow down and you're still going fast as fuck. Your brain is telling you slow the fuck down. Your body presses on the gas and you go really slow around the turn. But in a Formula One car, if you slow down too much, you can actually spin out. So if you if you don't maintain a certain speed around the turn, if you if you choose to go with what your brain is wanting you to do, that can actually cause a crash. It, it, it could cause you to go out of control, it could cause a crash, cause you to go off the track, cause you to lose time. So you actually have to maintain a certain speed around the turns and go against your instinct, which is wild. I, I it's absolutely insane. And the the power at which you have to press the brakes, you you have to slam. I mean press like a fucking leg press on these brakes to get the car to slow down. That's why you have to be in such good shape as an F1 driver. You have to have a shit ton of stamina because your body's under so much stress, you're sweating out so much fluid. The G forces on your neck are are insane you can pull five g's around a turn and i believe air force pilots they'll pull up to nine or or 10 g's maybe 11 g's at the at the highest if you're if you're driving a fighter jet but like five g's and doing that dozens of times a race that's so much when you go around a turn and you pull five g's every time you're doing a turn that fast your neck has to be insanely strong and so do your legs because you're you're you have two pedals and i was watching a video with this guy who was driving an f1 car for the first time so he wasn't a professional driver and he was going around the track and one thing he was saying after his experience was that he did not know how hard you had to press the brake to get it to stop and he looked like a normal dude he he was probably you know, five, I'm just guessing like 5'11", 175, looked like he worked out a little bit. I wouldn't look at this guy and say, oh, he's weak. And he pressed, he said when he was pressing on the gas, when, uh, when he, sorry, when, when the average guy, when this, this, the guy who's not a pro driver, when he was pressing on the brake at what he thought was 100%, the, the F1 guys, the team was telling him, yeah, you're at like 60, 75% right now. So this is a normal dude slamming on the brake and they're like, yeah, that's 75% pressure. And during a race, you're not, you don't have to 
slam the brake down 100%, but you, you're probably, I, I would assume, unless you're on the straightaways, you're keeping somewhat of a on and off uh, intermittent pressure on the brake, and your leg has to be insanely strong to do that. Not only are you putting, it's like a wall sit with how you're sitting in the car because these guys are leaning back and their feet are up almost like they're in the, the, not the fetal position, but like you're kind of curled up. So not only are you applying pressure to the brake, like you would be doing on a wall sit, but it's like a wall sit where you have to press through the ground because the brake is so tough to get down. So psychologically and, and physically and mentally, it's it's crazy what these guys have to go through. I highly recommend checking out this series on Netflix. I am at the end of the first season and it is it is ultra competitive. It is not a team sport at all, at all, which is obvious, but going into F1, the one thing I did know was that there are and when I say it's not a team sport, it's not team in the sense of camaraderie where you would be playing a doubles match in tennis or you're on a team with other baseball players or football, whoever. There are teams for each competitor, for each company. So like Mercedes, um, Ferrari, uh, you got, uh, what is it, Force One for India, something like that. There's 10 different teams, two drivers a team, but there's a lot of tense there's a lot of tense moments there's a lot of competition between these two drivers there there are drivers on the same team that have basically wrecked each other out of passive aggressiveness that's how competitive it is because no spot is safe when you're an F1 driver every race car driver in the world wants your fucking spot and there's only 20 of them there's thousands of people competing around the world waiting for you to fuck up and so while you want to get the most points as a team for a, as a whole, the, the higher you finish. So if you and your teammate finish in the top 10 in the points, that's amazing. But at the same time, you know that there are other people vying for your seat, especially the guys that are un, not under contract. So you see that back and forth a lot where there are guys that are kind of on the border and they're looking to prove themselves or maybe they don't like their teammate. And of course, when it comes to you versus your teammate, you have to put yourself first. It, it, again, you are on the same team, like the the team of the the company that is funding you. You have the other engineers, you have the the pit crew. But in terms of you versus the driver, there's not a lot of camaraderie between these guys, which I didn't expect. I, I expected it to be more like oh you know i want us both to finish at the top it is not that at all it is very solo minded which i guess it has to be because you're sitting in a car by yourself at the end of the day there is no one to blame but you so if your spot gets taken you're shit out of luck you're you're a backup you're a reserve driver for a team or you're completely out of the circuit it's tense shit very tense and, and I have a huge amount of respect for these guys and I cannot wait to go to a race I'm gonna be um, there's a chance I'm in South America later this year and there's actually a race in Buenos Aires sorry not Buenos Aires uh Brazil there's a uh starts with a B a town in Brazil, forget what it is, but there, there's a race in Brazil, and it's in November. So if every if the stars align, I will be at that track in Brazil to see my first F1 race. So fingers crossed. No definite plans yet, but you know it's pretty expensive to go to a lot of these F1 weekends especially in the United States i, I see there there's one in Austin there's a bunch in Europe um, you know UK France Monaco a lot of these weekends are very expensive and not just the ticket but to get a hotel somewhere cuz they jack up the prices every time there's a race like it's the super bowl cuz there's not a ton of races um during the year 
and they're all spread out throughout the world. So it, it is kind of like the Super Bowl for a lot of these places. But uh, supposedly the race in Brazil is not that bad to go to price-wise. So hopefully, hopefully I can check that out for a bit. Speaking of intense mindsets, speaking of things that really try your nerves, I'm reading the book Lone Survivor right now by Marcus Luttrell with Patrick Robinson. And Marcus Luttrell is a Navy SEAL. He, uh, for those of you who don't know, there's a movie made about what Marcus Luttrell and his teammates went through on Operation Red Wing when they were caught in the mountains between Afghanistan and Pakistan and the Hindu Kush. All of Marcus Luttrell's teammates uh, fought valiantly but were killed by the Taliban, by Taliban forces, and Marcus Luttrell, by God's will, which he says in the book, survived. And it's this whole crazy story about the will of a group of Navy SEALs and ultimately the solo will of Marcus Luttrell to make it out of a situation where anyone else, literally anyone else on the planet would have died. Navy SEALs are just fucking they're another level and I've seen the movie I'm gonna rewatch it after I'm done with the book but the movie doesn't really go into and and again it's a it's a great movie but because of the medium because it is a movie you obviously can't include everything in the book and the first half of the book is a lot of uh, pretty much all of the first half of the book is the training and the hell week that you have to go through and and all the the different schools that you have to go to as a, a Navy SEAL and I want to read an excerpt. Maybe we'll read a couple of excerpts from Lone Survivor to, you know, just give you an idea of the intensity of this type of training and what Marcus Luttrell is going through and what it takes to be a Navy SEAL. Because I, I had respect for these guys. I have spoken to guys who know SEALs. I've never knowingly spoken to another Navy SEAL, but I just know... It's another mindset. It's another, it's a different breed of human. It's a, literally, the, the, the seals are crafted. They are welded into a different species. If you read Lone Survivor, you'll know what I'm talking about. That like Hell Week and seal training and these special operations that they have to go through literally weld you into different species of human you do not you you do not approach fearful situations in any sort of human way it is a completely different level of existence and a completely different level of teamwork and we're going to talk about some of that right now because it's interesting as hell it's it's interesting as hell week so this is an excerpt from Lone Survivor about the sniper test that Marcus Luttrell had to go through in sniper school with his teammate. Luttrell says, For the final test, I was working with a partner, and this meant we both had to stay well concealed. In the end, he finds the range and calls the shot, and I adhere to his command. At this stage, the instructors have installed walkers all over the place, and they're communicating by radios with the platform. If the walker gets within two steps of you, you've failed. So basically, they're, they're in the, the sniper training school right now, and the final test they have to do is they have to hit a target while staying concealed. And these walkers are other seals other people that have already passed sniper school that are walking around trying to detect the seals the seals who are navigating through this open field and it can take them hours hours to move inches and sometimes you're just staying still for hours and so you have to go through an open field essentially there's little to no cover you have to while, while People have binoculars trying to find you, long-range binoculars, and people walking through the field. And as a sniper with your teammate, with your spotter, you have to crawl, make the shot, hit the target, and then stay there. Because once you pull the trigger, 
everyone's going to hear it and look towards where the shot came from. So you have to stay still for 30 minutes, an hour, just so people kind of fall off your scent. And then you have to crawl back again hours where you came from to pass the test, all while not being spotted by anyone. So Marcus goes on to say, if the walker gets within two steps of you, you failed. Even if you get your shot off unseen and hit the target, if they find you afterwards, you still fail. It's a hard, tough, thinking man's game, and the test is exhaustive. In training, an instructor stands behind both of you while you're crossing the forbidden ground. They're writing a constant critique, observing, for example, that my spotter has made a wrong call, either incorrect distance or direction. If then I miss with a shot, they know the mistake was not mine. As ever, you must operate as a team. The instructor knows full well you cannot position, aim, and fire the rifle without a spotter calling down the range. And Jesus, he better be right. There was one day during training where they walked on me, which I thought was pretty damn nervy, but it taught me something. Our enemy had a damn good idea where we might head before we even started. A kind of instinct based on long experience of rookie snipers looking for cover. They had me in their sights before I even got moving. Because they knew where to look, the highest probability area. That's a lifetime lesson for the sniper. Never ever go where your enemy might expect you to be. My only solace on that, uh, that uh, rueful occasion was that the instructors walked on every single one of us that day. So yeah, they... They, uh, Marcus got found out. Everyone else in the sniper school got, got walked on. They were spotted. And the, the lesson that I highlighted in the book, never ever go where your enemy might expect you to be. That's a damn good lesson. I feel like that applies to building relationships applies to business it applies to just things that you're doing where you're drawing attention to yourself any type of attention don't go where your enemy expects you to be don't be obvious because the obvious answer a lot of times is it's like the most, the, 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 the thing that you want to do the most. It's like, it's like you, can't, you can't wait to go there. It just seems like this is the obvious option. And a lot of times the obvious option is the easiest option. And you want to take it because it's there. It's, it's, and everyone else sees it too. That's the thing. The, the, a lot of times the thing that is the easiest is usually... The thing, sorry, the thing that is obvious is usually the easiest. That's why it's so obvious because people don't take the time to evaluate other sort of scenarios, other sort of situations, other sort of things that may actually be a better decision long term, but it's going to take some work to get there. It's going to take some work to get there. I feel that a little bit with with uh with baseball actually kind of kind of reminds me back in the day there is something as a pitcher that sits inside every pitcher which is i have to throw harder i have to throw with high velocity as a baseball player as as a, a pitcher especially the harder you throw the less time the batter has to see the ball the less reaction time they have the 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 better you are as a pitcher with velocity if you take two pitchers with the same stuff they have the same talent skill level one pitcher throws 98 the other pitcher throws 92 obviously you're taking the guy with 98 but the way to get velocity there there are short-term ways to throw harder that are not great for your body long term and i actually used one of those ways for me you know i i found a way to throw very hard very quickly when when i as a freshman in college 
I threw about 81, 82 miles an hour, which is slow as shit. The only reason I was on a college team throwing that slow is because I'm a lefty. If you throw left-handed, it's like you're adding five miles an hour to your fastball. It's like I was recruited as a, a righty throwing 87 because I was a lefty throwing 80 poo. And by the time, so so spring 2011, uh, sorry, spring uh, 2012, my freshman year, I was throwing low 80s. By the next spring, I was throwing upper 80s, low 90s. So I had gained about 10 miles per hour. And the way that I did that was I started throwing very violently, very jerky almost, intensely. And it worked for a while. It, for about a couple years, I was sitting between 89 miles an hour to 92 miles an hour, topping out at 94 which for a lefty was great because I was getting some attention from scouts. I was playing, you know, thought, you know, I'm going to have a great chance to go on and play pro baseball, which is what I always wanted. I'll, I'll get a shot. And I, I didn't realize that the, the, the short term path that I took towards creating velocity was only going to work for a little while because I also wasn't working on my mobility I wasn't evaluating my mechanics as thoroughly as I should have been. I wasn't taking into account, okay, what is all this jerkiness going to do to my body? Yes, I'm throwing hard. Yes, my numbers are better. Yes, my velocity is up. But how is this going to last long term? And I ended up getting hurt my end of my junior year. So after, uh, you know, end of junior year, senior year, ended up getting two elbow surgeries, with my nerve, had some shoulder problems, and there may not have been a direct correlation between my mechanics for which I was throwing, using to throw hard, and the surgeries. I'm sure it had part of part. Uh, it was partially connected, but may not have been wholly connected. And maybe the nerve surgeries would have happened anyway. But there's no doubt a some sort of connection between the high the, the the very rapid increase in velocity that I had and using the jerkiness of the movements that I was choosing and the the injuries that I sustained there's there's at least a partial correlation now there's another path to gain velocity and and again it's not formulaic it's it's different for everyone I'm just talking at a general level there's another path to gain velocity which is you can't just throw harder, but you have to throw harder in a way that's sustainable for your body type and sustainable for your level of mobility and that will allow you to throw hard for 10 to 15 years. Not just a year or two and then you break down. And I didn't really think about that. I didn't think about, you know, I was 20, 19, 20 at the time. I was just like, fuck yeah, I'm throwing... I'm I'm warming up before games hitting 90. Like literally I would turn around on the on the scoreboard and I would throw my warm up pitches before the game actually started just just like sailing it in there. And I would see 90 on the gun and I'd be like my I'm going to throw fucking gas today. Cuz those are just warm up pitches. And that was fucking cool. But what I should have done if I was taking a better approach to be a long-term pitcher, take the long-term uh, long-term velocity gain, is to really look at my body type and the jerkiness from which I was using to gain the velocity and spend more time becoming mobile, spend more time working on my hips, spend more time being explosive with the range of movement necessary to maintain that explosion. Because I'm not saying don't be explosive as a pitcher. Obviously, you want to be explosive, but you also need to have a, a range with your, your thoracic spine and your hips and your shoulders, your external rotation. Your body needs to be able to sustain that. And if you just fucking like one day you're throwing 82 and the next day you're throwing 92, your body still has the mobility and the range of someone who's throwing 82. The forces on your body throwing 90 plus are so much higher, demand so much more mobility, demand so much more recovery than 
someone who's throwing in the low 80s. And I didn't take that into account. I thought my body would just adapt. And now I'm five plus years removed from my baseball career. And I'm realizing there are other things that I could have done, like do um, pay more attention to mobility, not necessarily make my goal. How can I get the most velocity, but how can I do it being violent, but smooth? really paying attention to how I feel because I did feel some pain that I ignored leading up to my shoulder, uh, my elbow surgeries, and also some pain in my shoulder. I was just kind of putting that in the back of my mind, hoping it would go away. There were warning signs. I didn't just wake up one day and need elbow surgery. And the reason I say that is because the obvious, it, it was obvious to throw harder the first path I took be jerky be just throw violent as fuck whatever you have to do it's obvious that's where people would expect me to go that's where I would expect velocity to lie long term but sometimes you need to move past the obvious you need to have the endurance and the creativity to see other options that because the obvious the obvious tricks you the obvious tricks you because you get a short-term boost it's like come closer come closer like this is better but after a few weeks or a few months you start to realize that this may not have been the best option and the the, the the sniper school that Marcus Luttrell talks about where he's like the the these there are places on the field where the the seals are expecting the snipers to go through you know they're the people who are the the the, the supervising the range they know the range very well they know where the sniper is going to go and what provides the best cover they're going to be looking there they're going to they're going to be expecting the enemy to go there and the enemy in this case is the the trainees of the sniper school and there are other options that are better long term for cover and for hitting the target and for completing the mission that may take a little extra work may take a little extra endurance extra creativity to make something for yourself that's going to work so lifetime lesson for a sniper Never, ever go where your enemy might expect you to be. There's a lesson in there, too, for whatever you're doing, podcasting, baseball, you know, business, painting, music, whatever it is. When you have the obvious expectation of an industry or an enemy or a, a, a just some sort of interaction, something that demands attention where a bunch of people are competing and trying to get to the same goal or trying to thwart you from reaching the goal. The obvious is going to be the, the, the highest guarded. And the, a lot of times the best way for you to get in, get your foot in the door is to pretend like the obvious doesn't exist. Okay. Let me put this to the side for a second and explore my options let's see if we could find another spicy excerpt from this book because i'm at the end of it right now and let me i'm gonna flip through there's a lot of mark down a bunch of places i just want to find a, a good one for you guys here's one about Lieutenant Michael Murphy. Michael Murphy risking his life to save Marcus and the rest of his teammates. And this is a situation where they're all fucked. They're surrounded by the Taliban. They're in the Hindu Kush mountains. And Mikey is the comms guy. Lieutenant Murphy is the comms guy. And they're trying to make contact with the other SEALs that can come pick them up in the helicopter. And in order for Mikey to do that, he has to put himself in the line of fire to get them out of there. 
And this is what Marcus says. They shot me, bro, Mikey said. The bastards shot me. Can you help me, Marcus? Marcus says, what could I say? What could I do? I couldn't help except by trying to fight off the enemy. An axe was standing right in my line of fire. I tried to help him get down behind a rock, and I turned to Mikey, who was obviously badly hurt now. Can you move, buddy? I asked him. And he groped in his pocket for his mobile phone, the one we had dared not use because it would betray our position. And then Lieutenant Murphy walked out into the open ground. He walked until he was more or less in the center, gunfire all around him, and he sat on a small rock and began began punching in the numbers to HQ. I could hear him talking. My men are taking heavy fire. We're getting picked apart. My guys are dying out here. We need help. And right then, Mikey took a bullet straight in the back. I saw the blood spurt from his chest. He slumped forward, dropping his phone and his rifle. But then he braced himself, grabbed them both, sat upright again, and once more put the phone to his ear. I heard him speak again. Roger that, sir. Thank you. Then he stood up and staggered out to our bad position, the one guarding our left, and Mikey just started fighting again, firing at the enemy. He was hitting them too, having made that one last desperate call to base, the one that might yet save us if we could send help in time, before we were overwhelmed. Only I knew what Mikey had done. He understood what uh, he understood. We had only one realistic chance, and that was to call in help. He also knew there was only one place from which he could possibly make that cell phone work, out in the open, away from the cliff walls. Knowing the risk, understanding the danger, and the full knowledge the phone call would cost him his life, Lieutenant Michael Patrick Murphy, son of Maureen, fiancé of the beautiful Heather, walked out into the firestorm. His objective was clear, to make one last valiant attempt to save his two teammates. He made the call, made the connection, he reported our approximate position, the strength of our enemy, and how serious the situation was. When they shot him, when they shot him, I thought mortally, he kept talking. Roger that, sir. Thank you. I am a goddamn pussy. That's what I feel like every page, every page I read this book more and more, I feel more and more like a soft ass bitch. And it's not because Marcus Luttrell writes it that way. He's, he seems like, you know, obviously he's confident in his abilities as a Navy SEAL. You're able to do things no one else on the planet can do. But him just describing the situations he's in, I'm thinking about, the comforts that I have in my own life and how I would react in similar situations. And I just can't even comprehend that. Which is why I'm so grateful that there are people out there on this planet that protect this country that I live in, the people I love live in, strangers live in. I'm grateful that there are people exist like Marcus Luttrell and Lieutenant Murphy and the other two SEALs and the team. Because in order to stop bad things from happening, in order to stop these, like the darkest aspects of existence, to to stop sex trafficking, to stop terrorism, to stop cartel activity, drug smuggling, murder, shit like that, You need people who can operate within the bounds of those worlds and stick to the action of the mission. And in that mission, Lieutenant Michael Murphy's objective, in in that small part of the mission, which they endured, which is just daunting, just fucking horrific. In that small part of the mission, Michael Murphy decided that that call needed to be made to save the lives of his crew and to get them out of there. And the one thing that Marcus Luttrell says throughout the book is that he always believed there was a way out, you know, during the the initial firefight, that they were surrounded by literally hundreds of Afghan Taliban fighters in the inhabitable Hindu Kush mountains, sheer face cliffs, throwing yourself down rocks to get better positions they never felt like they were out of the fight and when Michael Murphy made that call I imagine 
he was thinking the same thing that even though I'm just got shot through the fucking back and he's still fighting, I guess running on adrenaline and training. I imagine he never thought for a second that they were out of it, that that, making that call was not giving up. Making that call was getting reinforcements to further the fight, whether it was in that moment or going back to the mountains. And myself, you know, having bullets flying around with people shooting at you that don't understand anything else about you besides the fact that they hate your fucking guts. Going to their country to stop terrorism at its highest level and being able to complete a mission and stay in the mission, let alone completing it, just staying in the presence of the mission, getting shot, getting bones broken, looking into the eyes of terrorist Taliban fighters that want to fucking kill you. They want to kill you. They want to crucify you and put videos out of beheading Navy SEALs, put it on the media, and you are four against 100 plus, four Navy SEALs against 100 plus Taliban fighters, and you get shot through the back and you're making a phone call to base and you get back in position and start firing and hitting people, just taking them down like, like fucking, that, that's, the, that's the type of thing that I might do if I was sparring in a Muay Thai class in Brooklyn and, you know, someone gets a good, a good jab in, gets through, through my, through my defense, hits me in the chin and I'm, I reset and I'm like, all right, I'm still in this fight and I'm sparring, having a good time. I'm getting better. That's the type of reaction that Lieutenant Michael Murphy had when he got shot through the back by a Taliban fighter, by a terrorist who wants to fucking kill him, and he just got back in line and started shooting. And they're again, they're making jokes throughout this time. the The seriousness of the mission never leaves them, but they're able to have levity in only the sick, humorous way that a Navy SEAL can. Which is also a you know, part of the book I appreciate is getting an insight into the everydayness of what it's like to be a Navy SEAL. Type, not just Hell Week. But just the type of jokes you crack, the conversations, preparing for a mission, all the schools that you have to go through, the preparation, just the, 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 the whole essence of what it's like to be a Navy SEAL, at least what I can understand from the book. That's what I appreciate about it. And I, I highly recommend reading about Navy SEALs and reading about people who do things like go into, not just go into evil, but go towards evil with a mission and are able to stay calm and relaxed and in the moment to carry out that mission with bullets, bombs, RPGs, knives, whatever you name it. That is just part of the mission. Those people are necessary people. The the, the types of people that can face evil in that sort of way can face other human beings that want to destroy people in horrific ways on this planet. It's it's a necessary aspect of human existence. And the seals are a big part of that. They're the reason why you know, we're fighting terrorists over in Afghanistan and not in Connecticut. At least not those type of terrorists. It's crazy shit. Absolutely crazy shit. And also, Marcus Luttrell went on Joe Rogan last year, and I remember him talking about actually empathizing with the guys in the Taliban. Like, empathizing from the point of view of like if you if you take the perspective of a Taliban fighter fighting a navy seal the seals are coming into your country looking for one of your leaders 
and trying to kill that person and anyone who defends them. So it would kind of be like the Taliban coming to D.C. and looking for the president and killing anyone in the White House who got in the way. It's like directly coming into those. Uh, if you're trying to make a comparison between what it's like to hunt down the Taliban, your American SEALs going into their country trying to take out their leader, obviously they're going to be pretty pissed off. And so Marcus Luttrell is taking at least empathetically the position of these Taliban fighters and saying like, look, these guys need to die. We need to complete our mission, but I don't blame them for shooting at us because we came to them. So having that sort of awareness too, I would expect someone like Marcus who's been through all that shit to be super hardened and unwilling and unable to empathize with the other side, the side of quote unquote evil, if you want to call it that. So yeah, it's highly recommend Lone Survivor, the book and a movie as well. It's great. The last thing I want to get into, speaking of movies, is a question from Ask Reddit. And this question, uh, you know, I find I find it useful for solo podcasts to get ideas, comb around. And a lot of times when you're talking to yourself or to the people that listen to this episode, but in the moment I'm recording it right now, talking to myself, you have to give yourself some prompts. So... Reddit is a great place for that. And one of the questions on Ask Reddit is what happens only in real life and never in movies? What's something that happens only in real life and never in movies? And I'm going to tell you exactly what I think about this after this coffee sip. What happens only in real life and never in movies? Immediately, what comes to mind is the day after the happy ending. I've always, in romantic comedies, you always have, or any type of romance film, you always have the lead up to the guy getting the girl or the girl getting the guy, getting each other, getting each other off, finds its way in there. You always have the build up to the ending, the denouement to the climax. What they never show in movies is the day after. Like you wake up with the girl of your dreams and it's like, okay, now you've got her. This is life. And I would love to see a movie and maybe this already exists, but I would love to see a movie that just starts with the guy getting the girl and it's just in this dream state and they're all happy. And, you know, the first scene of the movie is the guy running to the airport to convince the girl not to get on the flight, not to leave. That just iconic, cliche, now hack moment in cinema where the guy's just like running through the airport and he's, and somehow <laughs> TSA just does not give a fuck. There's they're they're bomb sniffing dogs there for trying to catch terrorists and, and people smuggling drugs. And somehow if a guy's running after the supposed love of his life, the TSA agent's just like, dude, let him go, bro. We got to let him go. There's no way someone in that much love could also be carrying sharp objects or bombs on them. We have to let them through. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if he doesn't have clear. Just let him through. He can sign up when he gets back. But this guy's in love. Don't you see? Love is the answer. Love gets you through the gate. I'm going to try that next time I get to the airport. I'm going to Richmond this weekend. I'm going to see what happens if I, I, I get into the LaGuardia and I start at the door. And I just start running towards the security line and like, wait, 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 hold it, hold it, hold it. She's the one. She's the one. And see if the Red Seas just part like they do in the movie and the TSA agents are crying. And there's that there's that one black woman who's just like, you know, go get him, go get him. Let him through. Just an emotional black woman that's just like, yeah, you you go get her. 
I'm gonna I'm gonna try that. I'm gonna try that this uh, this weekend. Just start from the door of LaGuardia, sprint towards TSA. Hold it, hold it, wait, wait. She's the one. She's the one. She's the one. And maybe I'll maybe I'll get through. Maybe it will be like it is in the movies. Or maybe I'll get immediately tackled and tasered, which seems much more likely. And get brought in for questioning and I'll miss the entire trip. And they'll say, what the fuck are you doing? She's the one. She's the one. No, hold it. Hold it. I go from chasing down the love of my life to just shitting my pants unconscious on a an airport floor. People just waiting in line in security. If I was waiting in line in security... You know, like how focused you are when when you're in the security line, like you're just you're listening to music or just like you're so not focused, but just like just your your attention is so zoned out that you're somehow focusing on something like I'm, I'm just I'm so you're you're not just zoned out. You're zoned out to the point of just all you just locked in on the person in front of you. And when they shuffle forward, you shuffle forward. I think if someone sprinted towards the security line and got tasered and I was standing in the security line and some guy's just like, she's the one just shitting his pants right next to me in security. I don't think that would register as something that I need to pay attention to because the, the zoned out focus of the security line is just so just, it's just like, what is this dude like clean up your shit and get out of here i'm trying to make a flight get the what the fuck is going on bro so yeah we'll see how it goes this weekend um but yeah they never show the day after the first scene in the movie should be you get the girl you you get her on the plane she ends up not taking the flight which by the way what if you just waited for her to come back what is why is that never an option? Why like the girls always leaving? It's like they're leaving forever. She's it's like she's flying to Dallas for a week, and the guy can't just text her and be like, "Hey, have a great trip. See you when you get back." There's always that chase. But if if a movie started after that iconic airport scene, and then five minutes into the movie, an alarm goes off, and it's like doo, 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 doo. day one, you got the girl of your dreams. Now you're in real life, buddy. How are things going to go? There's never any real shit in a relationship. In the movies. I mean, there's some movies that show it, but I, I've never seen a movie um, that's gotten that aspect of it right. Marriage Story is great for the reality of a divorce. I mean, I've never been through a divorce, but God fucking damn, I never want to go through one. Just from watching that movie with Adam Driver and Scarlett Johansson. But I wish there would be a film that just got into the weeds of just the monotony, the excitement, the sadness, the roller coaster that is a relationship. That is a real life relationship with the real life man or woman, straight, gay whatever buy throw four people in i don't know it doesn't polyamorous just some sort of relationship where you have a storyline and you work the reality of the relationship into it it's not just the entire movie just building up to getting the girl it's like you got the girl now what are you gonna do buddy maybe one of you listening will make it maybe you're working on it right now if you are send me a link I'll check it out. Thank you guys for listening to this episode of The Aux. If you would like bonus episodes, I release them on auxoro.supercast.com. For five bucks a month, you get bonus episodes. You can suggest topics for the podcast, for this podcast, the solo one, and also the Auxoro podcast where I have guests. And I also do AMAs. Also, you can support the podcast by rating us on Apple Podcasts for five stars, which helps so, so much. And also on Spotify now allows you to rate podcasts. When you rate a podcast and when you comment, people search things on the podcast apps. And the more ratings you have, the more comments you have, the higher 
these episodes will appear in searches. So for example, I spoke about F1 Drive to Survive series on Netflix. I'll probably put that in the title. If I get a bunch of ratings, if I get the comments up, people, when they search Formula One or something on the Apple Podcast or Spotify, my the, the aux, my podcast will come up higher. So, so it does mean a lot. It's not just stroking my ego. Um, it is also about effectiveness and being able to reach people and getting organic growth and just adding more people to the audience, the community, this, this thing that's growing out of my control. So thank you again so much for listening. I love you guys and I will talk to you next time.